Happy Mother's Day again. That was a series I did years ago, parenting. There's a series of four videos, so um, if we put them all together, then rather lengthy. So thanks to Jacob, he kind of edited all that down to two and a half minutes. <laughs> but I think he got the point, right? Free moms, raising children, being part of a family, the beauty of that, the high honor of that, what that means. Um, I was thought about doing it at the end because when I look at that, it always kind of, you know, makes me a little emotional because I've lived through that. And it's a wonderful thing to see. So happy Mother's Day. It's Proverbs 31.10 says this, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. And if you go to Proverbs 31, and maybe you've read that, that section, most of that section in Proverbs 31 begins this principal description of what a godly woman is. And in my conversations with the godly women in my life, namely my incredibly awesome, wonderful wife and my own mom and, and that kind of thing, um, sister, and sister-in-laws and those kinds of things, and, and some of you, it's, for some of you women, it seems like that's a lot of pressure. I have to live up to this standard, which is a good thing. It's a good standard, but it can sometimes be overwhelming, I think, that if I don't hit the mark or something, I'm, I'm somehow lesser. And so it's an understanding of that whole text that because she is priceless, because she knows with whom her value resides, the things and the doings are important. They give life and they, they, ex they just glorify everything about life. But that's the result of her understanding of who and where her value comes from. Those are the outpouring, in other words. Those are the results. They are not the thing, but they glorify what that is, namely your relationship with the Lord. And that confidence comes from knowing Him as a woman created with specific purposes. And so this morning, I would like to dive into that a little bit. In light of where our current culture is, um, I thought it appropriate on Mother's Day of moms, of mothering, whether you are one or not, it still applies. Um, because the rejection of God's values as a nation, His purposes, or the redefining of those, in my estimation, have led to the flaming crater of a nation we now live in, as far as its values and what women are to be, and, and how that spills over into everything else. And it's a point that needs to be made that the issue is, it needs to be redeemed. It is lost. One of those aspects of that is what you've been given as a Christian, if you are, is that you have been obliged to go and baptize the nations. It's a gospel issue, in other words, and it's a gospel opportunity for us to come to an understanding of what that is. Just a brief history, if I you know, never really thought about what the history of Mother's Day was, but it officially began in uh, May of 1914 with Woodrow Wilson, but it began a long time before that, um, pre-Civil War. Um, her name was Anne Maria Reeves Jarvis, and she was, oh, you, you know, you can Google it, <laughs> who she was, but her, what she did and how she lived life is, is remarkable in the sense if you compare that to Proverbs 31 and how she applied that in her time and where she lived. She saw those needs in her community and met those. Uh, these, so she created these um, Mother's Day work clubs for specific things that she saw in her community and rallied other women 
moms, but daughters as well. They raised money for medicine because in that era, tuberculosis was a dreadful thing. And so not everybody had that. So in other words, she saw all of those. During the Civil War, it didn't matter whether you were from the North or the South. They fed you. They uh, cared for you. They, they doctored you, if you will. And so all through that era, that's what they did. So Mother's Day came from the daughter, Anna was her name, Anna Marie. Um, and to honor what her mom had done through all those, that, that, that time. And it's interesting because it wasn't too long after 1914, when Mother's Day was officially recognized as a national holiday, that Anna, the daughter, regretted that they started it because it became so commercialized. And so what's also interesting to me, because in 1948, she was arrested for protesting Mother's Day. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Something that had been something for honor to, to honor Mom and, and women all across this nation have, has now been so offended that she regretted it. Which made me think of the question, then what did God make women for? What problems are women the solutions for? I posed this in preparation um, with my grandkids here, my son's kids, and, and it's just, and, and if, if I've overinflated the joy of them, it just is hectic, that's all. And it takes me longer to get ready and to do things and, and to be here on Sunday. So I just do it mostly at night when they're sleeping. <laughs> so I ask when we visited my daughter this question with a little hesitancy, with probably a little Cheshire cat smile, <laughs> well, what do you think? And there was a litany of answers, but I'm just going to give you a few. Um, it was just, it just made me smile. So one of the responses was, well, what didn't he make us for? <laughs> and, well, yeah, I can think of some things. <laughs> you couldn't live without us. And probably my favorite one is, you're welcome. <laughs> In preparation to just to understand where we are as a culture, just listening to everything that has transpired in the last, certainly the last week, but also um, I've read a book called Even Exile by Rebecca Merkel, and I would encourage you as a woman to consider looking at that, reading that, especially daughters. It's, a, it's very well done, I thought, um, but also listening to the argumentation of the culture and what the view of that is. What, this is a woman. This is what that is. This is what that means, which is why everybody's on that side of things is just this, this conflation and this craziness of overturning Roe and what that means um, and what, uh, what decides and who decides the terms. That's really what it comes down to. See, the cultural standard in that dialogue that I listened to, once you get past all the noise, all the bluster, all the that, is that women are autonomous. That's the issue. Um, as I understood that conversation. Self-sovereignty. And this idea goes way back. This is pre-Civil War. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was one of the earliest women's movements before the Civil War. That's what's her term. Women are self-sovereign. Um, and it goes on from there. And so depending on your understanding of those definitions of where you orient yourself and how you process that thought, your starting point, your orientation, and the direction you are will predetermine where you end up with the conclusions about the answer to that question. So when you go to God's Word, 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2, certainly Proverbs 31, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2, all those places where Scripture refers specifically to women and what they are doing and, and the character and all of those things give us a different view. See, the conflation is, is that it has to be this or that. That's the culture. The culture says you have to either pursue a, a career and, and all of these things and forego a family because that's somehow lesser. And what you end up with is a, is a false choice. And when you pick one or the other in our present culture, and if it's not this one, then somehow you are now lesser as a woman because you want to be home with kids. And somehow that means you're not educated or you don't need one or all those things. And we process this stuff so quickly. And when it comes to Scripture, we do the very same thing. And I just want to give you an example of this. If you go to 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> it's an interesting um, text that Paul gives this, this early church. And he's talking about head coverings, and so forget all of that for the moment because we don't have time to talk through that, but inside of that is his rationale. So when you go to uh, chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is, the hu- is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then there's some conversation about more head coverings, all of that, verse 7, he gets to the point for man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for man. And then more conversation about symbols and head coverings. Verse 12, for as woman, uh, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, when you read that, and typically in the conversations I've had very quickly and honestly, sadly, when Christian women hear that, that man is the head, it means they are not. And somehow that means, in translation, that they are of lesser importance or lesser value. And we create this linear constitution of things or this hierarchy, and the farther down you get, the, the, the less value you have in some respect. And so when you get to Paul's notion in other places in Titus and whatnot, Timothy, that a woman is now to submit to her husband, you end up thinking that Paul is just some misogynistic, you know, woman-hating person, and this book is, shouldn't be listened to, and that women are basically left to this idea of household, that somehow you're tethered to a florally covered couch, and raising kids, and clothing them, and making casseroles, and that's it, right? Is that fair? At least in my estimation of my conversations, that's what the other side is arguing. And it filters into the church and into our Christian life that, oh, that this is it. That this is all there is. And I don't want that then, so there must be something more. And so we look for other places. And where we look is the culture, whose foundation is built on the father of lies and pursuing a godless opportunity and godless cultural aspects of how to live that out. Both make the same error. And so when you interpret this text or any text in that kind of linear way that women apparently are at the tail end, the caboose, the lower part of the hierarchy, to be consistent when you read 1 Corinthians 11, and this is hugely important because you can't read it this way, is that Christ is not God. He is somehow lesser because that's what Paul says. Christ is, is, is that in relationship to the Lord. The head of Christ is God. 
So if you interpret it that way, then Christ isn't God, and he's not deity, he's not glorified, and you just missed the boat completely in your understanding. So you can't be inconsistent if that's how you read things like that, when you come to Scripture, that it's this way, and somehow I am lesser. I am here, my whole point this morning is this, and this understanding of what you are as a woman is that you are not anything but who God created you to be, and it's not lesser. God created a reality in which there are boundaries, there are limits, they are fixed, they are fixed purposes for both men and women, and when we live those out faithfully in a gospel context and redeem the culture in that sense, you and I will be a city set on a hill. We will live clearly those purposes out, and it will be a distinct distinction between the culture and what the culture is saying. So what did God make women for? So when you answer that question, when you come to Scripture, when you look for that, I think it's pretty evident what that is. That's the easy part. The hard part is actually trying to live it out. That seems to be the hard part. The the recognition that when you read Proverbs 31, that the highest honor and glory is to recognize the woman is more precious than any jewel. And if you can relegate that context to understand that There is nothing more valuable than that. There isn't anything in this earth that has more value. I don't care how big your bank account is. I don't care what you value. Anything else has all lesser value than what God has created in those purposes. And so God has declared everything very good. So if you go to Genesis, this is where we'll begin. I'll conflate the scripture, but it's Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.18-20. And here's culmination of that, that one, God has declared everything in this created order to be very good. God doesn't miss, he doesn't miscreate anything, because he is pure and holy and good through all of that. And what does he do? He parades all the things that he created, the earthly animals, all those things before Adam, to see what he would call them. And in the process of that work that Adam's doing, he recognizes, hey, there's, there's nothing, there's no one like me, I see everything you've created, I see everything that you've done. I'm doing the work you've asked me to do, but there's nothing like me. And that reveals that Adam is just alone. So for the first time in creation order, God says something is not good. And the thing that's not good is that the man should be alone. And again, this is not a deficiency that God goes, oops, I forgot something. I got to make this up. That's not the point. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is what's coming The emphasis is why he's doing this. So God didn't forget, but his whole purpose is to magnify what the woman is meant to do and what she is to be. And in that process, woman comes from man, and then God declares for both of them to have dominion over everything of the earth. It's a dominion mandate, meaning, the ultimate dominion mean again, is just the subjugation. The subjugation of created order. It means to tread down, to possess, which makes perfect sense because that's exactly what God did when he created. He subjugated everything. He created it and put it in an order. And so he's giving these two human beings his pinnacle of creation, the very same image that he's given them to do, to live, to, to live out. The same authority that he has, he's saying, I want you to do this. So what does he do? He's made the world. He has this place called Eden, this, this uh, 
uh, geography, location, and then he places them in a garden. He says, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what I want you two to replicate throughout the whole universe, all the world that you're going to live. You're going to start here, and this is, I've created this perfect place for you. I've created everything here for you that you need, everything that you can do to live, to, to live in the sweet spot of life together in, as one. Now replicate that. Start in Eden and then take it to the whole rest of the world. And so when you come to Psalms 8, 6, you hear this. You have given him dominion over the world work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's this notion of purpose. And when we reorient ourselves, anything other than what God says, you run into all sorts of problems and how you end up of what you and I are for, specifically women today. So I'm going to give you four purposes that we find in Scripture. And they come from um, God's created order. And they are this. Subdue, fill, help, glorify. Subdue, fill, help, and glorify. The Hebrew word for subdue is kibosh. I'm not saying it in a Hebrew way because I can't. <laughs> but um, I, when I looked that up, I'm like, oh, to kibosh something. I, I remember my dad saying something or hearing that growing up. You know, it means putting down. It means to bring into bondage. It means to tame. God, again, formed the world. He formed Eden and said, you're going to kibosh this. You're going to tame this. This is what it should look like. Here's what I want you to do with the rest of the world. So before sin entered, if you want to think of it in this way, women are made to work. It was God-honoring. Yet Adam, when he is there, he can't do it. He can't complete this task in and of himself. Therefore, Eve, whose name means the mother of all living, Women have been given the task to assist, to work, to get our hands dirty, to do a God-ordained task in unity with the man, not sameness. Again, that's what the culture says. That What they're saying presently in our culture is that men and women have no difference whatsoever. You're just like widgets, and you can come and go as you please. You can be put here, put there. There is no distinction. That is a lie. There's a great distinction. It is not sameness. It's not whatever you can do, I can do better. It's both getting their hands dirty in unity for the same purpose of subduing to glorify God. Here's something else that God didn't say in that process. God didn't say, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make a trophy wife. I'll make something beautiful to look at. To never get your hands dirty. To not use your mind. To make someone beautiful and helpless so the man has to rush in and feel like he's the savior of it all. That's, that's not it either, but again, that's our culture. Because we have these preconceived notions that filter in, even to us as Christian people, to filter in, to go, if it's not that, it has to be this. I use this analogy, this example in first service, and I'm not sure how it resonates. It'll resonate with some of you because some of you have more gray hair than I do, but I'll use it anyway. The preconceived notion is when you think of your role in a certain way, you immediately have this tendency to think about history in other places. Well, oh, if it's not this, it should be that. So, for instance, the show Ozzie and Harriet, for those of you old enough to remember, one of the longest-running sitcoms or shows back in the 50s. It was a radio show before that. Oh, that it, that it has to be this. This is, what, this is women's role, and it has to be that. Or if you don't like that, if you prefer, you know, Pride and Prejudice and go back a little farther in history, or, or whatever. Or more presently, Downton Abbey. How about that one? 
You can't bend the other way either. You can't say, well, I like this, so I'm going to formulate it this way. But you can't bend the other way and say, well, it's not that, it's this. And you end up with what we have now and all the feministic nature and character of what's going on, declaring that I am just autonomous. Both are rebellious. Both forget what he was created for. And so when women become ornaments or just mere objects to be looked at in a culture, forgetting their God given mandate to work, to subdue the world, they are being asked to be lesser than what they were created for. And honestly, it never ends well for them. But when you go there, when you have a biblical foundation and you forget the the godlessness of, of, oh, we just evolved and we just did this and and we can just make whatever, that's why we have that. When you forget that and decide that I will pursue God's ordained means, you will begin swimming upstream and you will begin to understand God's design, his truth, and his reality. Because God will not be mocked. And sooner or later, the collapse of culture will come with confusion reigning, and it seems to me that's where we are in this culture. I'm not a race car guy, and I like cars, and they're very helpful. But when it comes to racing and designing, see, you know, um, I probably should have picked another analogy, but it's not that women can't be race cars, because there is one, right? <laughs> but I'm not one. But if you're going to race and be in a race car, race cars are designed for certain purposes. They are high-octane, high-efficiency, high-energy, high-all of that to do something specific, and it's to go really fast, right? They are designed The peeling of rubber, the feeling of the vibration, the heat that comes from that, the rumble of the engine when you start it up, you immediately know it's something different. It's not not like your minivan. It's not that. It's meant to do something. And so, yeah, thank you. So you don't simply see that kind of a car on your 20-mile commute to work, do you? Going 55 miles an hour. Now, it'll get you there. It'll do the job. And it'll get you from point A to point B, and everybody will stop and and probably cause an accident because they're looking at it as you're driving down the road. (laughs) What is that? Or if you just parked it in your driveway, and all you do is polish it and detail it and make it look shiny, and the whole neighborhood goes, wow, you are special. Still, not what it's designed for. It is lesser than what it was designed for. Women were created to race, to go after things certain things, big things, to work hard, to pursue, to win. When the Apostle Peter says women are the weaker vessel, it's to understand them to honor. It's not that they are weaker. There's a big difference when thinking that someone is weaker or you honor them as weaker. Meaning, not that they're weak in any stretch of the imagination, but they are in a place of honor. That's the difference. Does that make sense? It's not that they can't do things. It's not that they don't get their hands dirty. It's that they are unique and special, so you honor them. See, women will press hard, almost to an obsession to work. I know because I married one of those. (laughs) Don't ever admit or say, well, I'm not sure you can handle that. Because look at all you women like, yeah, (laughs) don't tell me I can't do that. (laughs) That's in your nature. I watch me. I'm going to show you what I can do, right? 
like adding a high-octane fuel to it. Again, I'm not a car guy, but I watched enough movies where, you know, the, the NOS button where you this injection of media, that, that's it. It just wants to go faster and harder and stronger to get to the finish line. See, if you actually saw that kind of a race, excuse me, a race car on your 20-mile commute to work, again, you'd say it gets the job done, but it is completely out of place. That's what our culture has done with women. Giving them a false choice and taking them completely out of the place and purposes that God has designed. So ladies, if you buy into that, if you buy into what the culture is telling you today, what your purpose is, you'll be lesser than what God created you and meant for you to be because it's a false choice. See, in essence, to boil the choice down, it's, it's pretty much, in my estimation, in the conversation and, and what I've listened to, this, especially this past week, it's this. You either pursue a career and forego being a mom and having children because that is demeaning, that is lesser, that is beneath you, or if you decide to do that, then you've abandoned something that you've been created for can do or whatever. Because you can't do both. That's what the culture is telling you. But that's not what God tells you. You are meant to subdue. There are means and methods in which you do that. You are not self-autonomous. You're not self-sovereign. You're not a standalone. Neither is the man. We'll get to that on Father's Day. But today, it's, it's this. The culture has groomed women to believe that it's only the corporate world that you can find what you're looking for. Value, success, to be something and someone. Only there can you go 200 miles an hour and race the car. Because it's the domestic life that's restrictive. Where the speed limits are, where the speed bumps are, where the stop and start, where the potholes are. To be keepers of home or working in the home as Paul tells Titus. And even when I say that, we start to conflate in our 21st century mind what that means. So you have to go back and understand what he's writing to. Because in the first century, any business a man had, his wife was right there with him. And where was it? It certainly wasn't online yet. We can agree there, right? <laughs> it was in their home, for goodness sakes. There was no shopping mall. There was no online anything. Everything was done in the home. And if you, had, if you were, uh, you know, worked with metal or wood or all that, Jesus and his dad was a carpenter. Where was he a carpenter at? At his home. They didn't go to work. And that's the difference between a culture of back then and the industrial revolution that we are on the other side of. And we just now have to apply those principles in our day. We can't go back. So when Paul tells Titus that, it's not that the picture we typically get is, oh, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just there for making babies, changing diapers, making food, and doing these things, and I feel lesser. Do you not, ladies? If that's all that it is, that's just lesser to you. And it should be, because that's not, that's not this. So don't conflate that and port that and say, well, this is, it's that. It is not that. It is just lesser, and that's the lie of the culture. You and I, women in particular, and men, their husbands, are meant to subdue the earth the way they did that. Listen, my wife and I, we had a business. My degree's in landscape design. She knew just as much about the business side of it as I did because we did it together. That's the notion that Paul is getting to in Titus. She got her hands dirty, specifically because we played with a lot of dirt. 
I usually say, I have a degree in dirt. <laughs> Every spring, 10,000 plus plants, my kids loved it. Oh man, did they love going out there to work <laughs> while their friends were going to Florida. <laughs> but they appreciate it now, I can tell you that. That's the idea of subduing. We did it together. And man, was she a good salesperson. Holy cow. People come in to buy one plant. She goes, hey, you know, if you put this, this, and this together, that looks, see how good that looks? They're walking out with 10 plants. <laughs> She's amazing at that. That's the notion, the biblical notion. Now, you have to port that over, and how does that apply 21st century now? But don't conflate it and don't misrepresent what it means. Here's the second one. Probably spent too long on that one. So subdue it. Hard work. Get your hands dirty. Here's the other one is fill. In that section in Genesis 1, 28 and Genesis 2, God's direct command to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth as human beings. That's the mandate. That's something Adam cannot do on his own. See, not only was Eve made to subdue, to be alongside that and work just as hard as the husband in order to have dominion. But God gave them as image bearers the means in which to create life, just like he did. And today, it seems to me, at least again, the culture that I listen to, the other side, sees that as a grave dishonor, a burden, again, something far lesser. And yet this is how you subdue the world. Not only do you work, but you fill it, and you fill it with children. So women are essential to God's plan and his mission for this world. Again, you can ask all the questions you want of why this, and, and why doesn't it work this way, or why doesn't it work, and, and all of those don't mean anything, because that's not what God did. It doesn't matter about all the what-ifs. This is what God did. This is the function that we're supposed to have. It's his plan. It's his purpose. Otherwise, we'd be, we wouldn't be talking about Mother's Day today. And so it's been quite clear to me, especially this week, that much of America are in complete rebellion to this mandate of filling, of becoming a mom. That trend started long before. One of the earliest, if you do a little research, her name is Elizabeth Cody Stanton, that women are self-sovereign. That concept through a few, eh, 75 to 100 years, leads to Margaret Sanger, who um, back in the early 20th century began Planned Parenthood, whose principal means was birth control and, and abortion, which leads to Betty Friedan, after her, to say, we're just going to throw off any biological role that there is. And you can see that in where we're living now. See, everything about a woman is designed and hardwired for mothering to give life. Even as I watch my grandchildren, we have my son's kids with us for a couple of weeks. The two youngest daughters are two and three. They just innately mother all the time, all day long. <laughs> it's the cutest thing ever. They weren't taught that. They try to do it to their older brother, older brother who is six, and he will have none of it. But they still try. They still try to be the boss. I love it. It's just cute as can be. And they certainly do it to their six-year-old 
little brother, or six-month-old little brother, because he has no choice. He can't move yet. <laughs> and it's a wonderful thing to see. See, culture says, children, eh, if, if I want. Children, only when I'm ready. They're an addendum to a relationship of a husband and wife at this point, it seems. Children have become the garnish to a fine meal or to a successful career. Genesis 3.20, Eve is the mother of all living. Woman is the life giver. That's what women are. They give life. She gives life, yes, in bearing children, but she gives life and brings life to all of her people, meaning her children, her husband, family, nurturing, spiritually, physically. She brings life to a community, just like the Proverbs 31 woman does. So again, if you process that and go, oh, it's just having babies, you have completely missed what life-giving means. It is that, but it is far deeper than that. And so somewhere there's been a false option placed before you as women in our culture to choose. It's either this or that. That's a false option. As the video showed at the end, it's just a phase. Don't miss it. You'll be missing out. Here's the third one, to be a helper. The third purpose of women is that of helper. And again, even just, just me saying that word, I, can, I just anticipate this this digging in, this you've created this hierarchy that somehow this is lesser. And I'm trying to clear that up today for you, at least as Christian people, to understand what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like. Eve was created to help Adam, not the other way around. That is true. Someone was first. Adam was God's glory. But again, it's somehow we process that as, oh, a helper means inferior. That's only in culture. Listen, that is only in when sin does its work. That's the only mindset we have because I'm not the boss. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the head. And so we process it to go, if I'm just helping, I'm somehow lesser. That is not biblical. It's certainly not Christian. It's not to say that we haven't mucked it up in history, but it's not that. And so we need to reorient ourselves. And so when you refer back to 1 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, that's what Paul says. The woman was created for the man. And even in that little sentence, you go, what? But once you do that, you are already pointed in the wrong direction, and you will already come to the wrong conclusion and the wrong interpretation. And so to be the other side of that, a typical response would be, how typically male of you to say such a thing? How demeaning of you? Mothering? Whose side is Paul on anyway? See, women are so much more capable with the gifts and abilities and are no way inferior to the gifts of men. They are just different. And the resentment comes in when we take, again, our 21st century thought process and port it back onto Scripture. See, the gifts you have been given as a woman are not inferior. They are unique to you. It's just comparing apples to oranges or a sunrise and, a, and the moon. They're both beautiful. They both have purpose. One's not lesser or greater in that sense. God has made those clear distinctions for us as men and women. And in our fallen state, we, we have this tendency to keep, we pull out a scorecard, it seems to me. Which all that does is separate. All it does is disunify. 
And specifically in a relationship of a husband and wife, God is meant to unify. So it's doing the exact opposite of what it was created to do when we go down this road. Just because one is a different role does not mean the other is better or the other is lesser. But that's what our culture is saying. And when they say that, now we can be interchangeable. Again, that is a lie. And so scripture is very clear that Eve was made to help. Which if you go back to and highlight Genesis 3.16, that's the very tension that you feel because it's the curse that God acquired to women. It says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And when we bend in our sinful demeanor, it messes everything up when we apply that in a sinful way. It has to be redeemed. The gospel has to renew you. Which is why you need it to begin with. Which is why you need to be redeemed because you and I muck it up apart from the gospel. It falls apart instantly because we will be self-autonomous and I will do it as a man, you will do it as a woman, and all we'll do is clash. But that doesn't, even that doesn't change God's purposes. It just, again, means we need to be redeeming them through Jesus Christ. And when they are, the curse is lifted. And you and I as Christian people, as a husband, as a wife specifically, now have the power and the means in which to live this out. To live purposely God's divine role for you. So what does helper mean? Again, you process it in a certain way. But here's what the Hebrew word means in Genesis 1 and 2 specifically. It's the word ezer. Now again, I'm not pronouncing it because I can't say Hebrew like Hebrews can. But it's a term for divine help. It shows up about eh, half a dozen times in Scripture, specifically this in this way. There's other variations of it, but specifically it's this, divine assistance. Moses named his, one of his sons Eleazar. And, he, and there's an attachment to that in, in when he's talking about that, his, that particular son. The God of my father was my help, my deliverance, or delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's this divine assistance, Psalms 121. My help comes from the Lord. My divine assistance comes from the Lord. Psalms 124.8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. It's the implication that I can't be complete. I can't do what I need to do without this divine help. Without this divine assistance, I can't do it. You're asking me to do something that is impossible for me to do without divine assistance. And women are God's supernatural help to the man. So we subdue. We subdue, we work, in other words, if you don't like that term, but it's work. We fill as women. Finally, we glorify. This is probably one of my favorites. Once you understand these big, broad categories of subduing, filling, helping, and what that means. I think this one is probably more powerful. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that God made Adam first, he's just restating what he understands from his Jewish up from reading the Pentateuch. He states that the woman is the glory of man because she came from him. And again, when you read it that way, you think, oh, it's just how lesser. I hope today, if nothing else today, when you walk out of these doors, you will never think that way again. That's my hope. It is not anything lesser. You are... Infl- or conflating that and turning it upside down. 
We just run it through our minds. Again, if God's glory is in the center, it's the hottest, the most powerful, and then man is next to that. Again, women are these outlayers somehow. And so there's just less glory out here than there is for the man because he's right there. You are reading it in error and understanding it in error. It's not less glory. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. It is more. It is glory intensified. It is glory magnified, not diminished, because women is the crowning glory of the man. A crown is a place of honor. You put in a place of honor. It's cherished. In other words, it is God's glory, man's glory, women's glory on the man. It's glory upon glory for the glory of God. In the book that I read, um, uh, I just forgot it. Even Exile. Again, I would strongly encourage you to read that, ladies. Um, get one, get a copy for your daughters. She makes this analogy of this, uh, this idea. If men are like beer, women are like whiskey. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> it's stronger, yes, you get it. And you don't need that much. They are intense. That's the picture. That's the picture of God's glory. It doesn't lessen. It is magnified. And when it is magnified and God's given purposes to help, to fill, to subdue, it is supercharged in a home. Certainly for the man. It is not leftovers. God's glory leftovers. It is not that. If God makes man as the pinnacle of creation, being the most glorified, then brings women out of man. They were unified at one point out of man, brings him out. Then what you end up is not less, you end up with more. It's just intensified. So when women are the most intoxicating form of God's glory, that's the point. That's Proverbs 31. She is more precious than a jewel. She's more precious than any monetary anything. That's the notion. And if we misapply this, if we allow our thoughts to not be captured by Christ, by the gospel, we run into all sorts of dysfunction when it comes to these relationships. First, we forget we are not the image, but we are the image bearers. We're not it, God is it. We are just reflecting it, reflecting His glory in how we live. Second, we forget our clearly defined roles that we have as men and women, but again, specifically women, in which we were made to, to fulfill that either one of us can't do, the other can't do the other's job, other, other resource that way. He has clearly defined those. And third, all of that takes the redemption of the gospel and what Jesus did to live it out well. What does that look like? What does glory look like in your life as a woman? It's this. It's knowing that you've been created second. And even when I say that, I'm always anticipating. I feel these darts. <laughs> But don't. You are second but equal, a helper who is equal. And here's why this is so valuable. This is why this one's my favorite part. Because you're willing and free to submit to, to the head, meaning your husband, with that intensified glory in your life. That's a submission. And why it's so glorious is because it's the same intensified submission that Christ exhibited when he was here. When you read 1 Corinthians 11, as a, God is the head of Christ, it's not lesser. What did he do? Jesus asked in John 15, or 17 rather, as he's understanding he's going to the cross and he's dying, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. 
So what, what happened? What did he do? Philippians, when Paul writes that, he gives us a clear understanding of what Jesus did. He was in the form of God. He did not equality with God, something to be grasped. He emptied himself, not of his deity. He submitted to the will. He submitted to the plan. He was obedient. How far did Jesus submit for you? All the way to the cross. So you didn't have to. It's a gospel issue is what we're talking about. Jesus died for you. He paid your penalty and mine. All my sinful wretchedness has been paid for in Jesus Christ. And there are no buts after that. Just a period. It's that kind of submission. See, submission comes first. It has to come first before glorification comes. Like a seed planted in the ground, it has to die only to be raised again later to bear much fruit, to be, in other words, glorified. No submission, no glorification. And this submission isn't coerced. This submission is offered totally freely out of love for another equal, meaning the man, not from a position of inferiority. It's submission just like Jesus gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's that submission that you willingly give to be glorified, intensely magnified. It's that picture of the gospel. And when a Christian woman exemplifies that glory by glorifying life in a thousand and one ways, I get it. He used to have, like, my grandkids. It's been a long time since I had to change a diaper. <laughs> if you can't see the glory in that, though, the glory of a woman in her life, whether she is a mom yet or not, or will be one one day, all those things are glorifying who and what God is in a thousand and one ways. It's living out your divine purpose, being a mother Maybe one of the highest, if not thus the highest, of the joy, the passion, the creativity, the honor, the beauty, to establish a home, to raise kids in the Lord. That's an unstoppable power. To work. But glory always follows submission. And here's a side note to that. The reverse is also true. When there is no submission, the glory fades. And that, I believe, is our culture. Here's how Paul finishes that thought in Philippians 2. For therefore God has a highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth. That's the glory of a woman. Not as a savior, but an image bearer of the Savior. And what that does. So when you read Proverbs 31 and you get to the end of that, you get all the things that she's doing, you get to the sandwiched by the beginning that she's more precious than the jewel. What are the actual results? Her children will what? Rise up and call her blessed. She is working. She is subduing. She is filling and she is glorifying, magnifying something that I as, as a man with my wife can only do make better. And everybody around sees it. The community, her family, her people, where she pours herself into life to glorify ultimately the Lord. So on this Mother's Day, I just want to remind us to continue as 
a Christian people, to restore the paths and purposes that God has established for us to live ultimately so he is glorified, so he is honored. Father, thank you for the gift of moms, of women, and mothering, of the work they do, the careers they have, the life they live. And that begins in all sorts of phases that we find ourselves a new mom, a mom who's graduating their last child, and everywhere in between. God, I pray that we understand and see that with honor, that we don't miss that phase no matter where we are, that we understand it. And Father, ultimately that we will recognize that this is a gospel issue. This, this is something in our culture that needs to be redeemed, that needs to be restored, that needs to be brought back to you so life can be lived in that sweet spot and the purposes and design that you have created with joy and peace, complete fulfillment, the mercy and grace that you give us through what Jesus has done at the cross. So Father, thank you for that gift of life. And God, I pray if there is someone here who doesn't know who you are in that respect, who is still lost in a culture that, whether they're a man or a woman, declares themselves self-sovereign, that you would bring them to their knees now before they see you face to face and redeem them so we can begin redeeming the culture. And like Nehemiah, build it one stone up at a time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.